a Radio 191 FM podcast. It's history time. Come on, tell your friends. We'll visit New Zealand's ancient lands with Jamie the host and Dr. Valetta Gillibit the historian. Our fun will never end because it's history time. It's Thursday. That means it's time for history time with Dr. Violetta Hilbert. Hello, um, Jamie. Yeah, hello. <laughs> um, wow, here we are again. Yeah, and then when we're finished, it will all be part of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's how history works. Uh, the 20th century. Oh, well, wait, wait, recapping, rewind. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about migration to Aotearoa. We've talked about Maori migration from Hawaii. Um, and then we went on last week to talk a little bit about early um, colonization by the British Empire uh, and some immigration uh, during the gold rush era. And even a little bit before that with um, sealers and whalers from, from all around the world. Um, now we're going to look at um, 20th century. The 20th century, early 20th century, New Zealand is exporting meat and butter to the Commonwealth. Other industries are opening up, jobs are on offer, and people are coming, particularly from the UK and Australia early on. Why, yes, Jamie. Um, it was actually a really optimistic time, the early 20th century. Um, New Zealand had just come out of the Long Depression, the last uh, two decades of the 19th century. And so in the 20th, heaps of growth, of course, refrigeration. Yeah, huge. So we're sending meat and butter out of New Zealand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're becoming um, Britain's farm. Um, we're sending all of our bits and pieces over there. So, yeah, um, it's a great time for uh, European migrants, certainly. Um, not so great for others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as we will continue on through this entire chat today, Restrictions on Asians will play a part uh, through the next 70 years. Yes, it's a it's a strong and continuous theme from here on in and um, very much reduced ethnic diversity for a lot of it. Sin, uh, from the frontier to the early 20th century, New Zealand was um, becoming monocultural, we could say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, things like the English language restrictions that came in in 1899 um, you know, essentially, if you couldn't speak English, and it's not like that thing didn't come, kind of come back. And I mean, it's relevant today. It's mm-hmm. kind of used today, which is a shame. Um, but there is English language restrictions um, brought in around that time. Uh, also, around that time, the Dalmatians. Um, you've got uh, the area of cowrie gum plantations opening up. For sure. So um, much like in the previous century, uh, as new industries are opening up, new groups of people kind of come to service them. And so, yeah, Dalmatians, or as we know them today, Lebanese, um, were heading over here as well. Um, they were uh, probably the more significant new migrant group to come in um, mm-hmm. during that time. Of course, the First World War um, coming in hot early in the 20th century um, makes suspicion of outsiders, quote-unquote, um, worse, and that kind of continued. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, they were confu- confused um, with the Austrians, apparently. That's something I read this morning <laughs> that there was an area set up in, in one small town uh, in Northland where most of the cowrie plantations were. They're, they're called Little Vienna <laughs> because of the Dalmatians that were living there. I'm not sure how much it would have resembled Vienna. <laughs> no, no. Oh, golly. And yeah, those, uh, those folks would have been confused, as was everybody else. Um, sounds of it. Yeah, so, I mean, anti-Dalmatian groups started to pop up in the Cowrie Gum Industry Act of 1898. The Cowrie Gum um, reserves were exclusively for the British subjects. Yes, and um, definitions of British subjects also changed um, variously. So, yeah, it, it was all um, a bit touch and go there. And we had restrictions coming in for particular industries, um, as we saw in the previous century too. So... Um, 
with gold mining. Now we've got uh, protections on Kauri. And that really continued um, through the 30s because, of mm-hmm. course, after the First World War, the Great Depression hits. Yeah. Labor comes into power with... Um, a real, really strong protect our own philosophy. Yes. They didn't want uh, migrants coming in from wherever and taking New Zealanders' jobs. Yeah, so they were a great nationalist, in a way, nationalist or, um, I mean, I guess, crown fan, fan, fans of, of British subjects. Because, yeah. um, I mean, they're, they're a union movement, mm-hmm. so they're a job movement. Uh, and they want to keep those jobs for British subjects, right? Yes, yes, or European-born Kiwis, ideally. Yeah. Um, so, of course, uh, around like just earlier, we had the Empire Settlement Act of 1922. So we were still having ex- assisted migration coming from Britain. Yes, um, but it it wasn't popular, and certainly non-British migrants were even less popular during mm-hmm. that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, Immigration Restriction Amendment Act came in 1920 with uh, the Prime Minister of the time, William Massey of Massey University, and mm-hmm. we all know, uh, said the result of deep-seated sediment of the part of a huge majority of the people of this country that this dominion shall be what is often called a white New Zealand. Quite right. Yep. Gross. Uh, yeah. Not not great. I mean, you know, we, we don't love that kind of sentiment these days for sure. Um, got to remember in the 1920s, uh, it was the heyday of eugenics in New Zealand yeah. and across much of the Western world as well. So uh, people prior to the Great Depression, people weren't only being concerned about jobs going to foreigners or migrants, but also of the New Zealand's quote unquote racial stock becoming corrupted and diluted, mm-hmm. especially after the First World War. They wanted a strong, well-organised, homogenous group of citizens who could defend the nation. Um, so that very much excluded, again, foreign-born folks. Where were these folks sitting in Aotearoa when they were coming, even the British subjects? We, we were still quite rural back in those days, right? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, heading to uh, major townships and um, smaller rural areas, and there were certainly as well um, settlements like uh, Waipu for... Um, for Scots migrants, um, and yeah, just uh, kind of dotting around. Um, but communities certainly did form. Um, folks drew together um, very closely in these little communities, much as um, non-European populations did. It was very much about getting a foothold with um, familiar folk around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we talk, just quickly go back to the Act of 1920, mm. um, you know, so you could have, they were like opening up the country to people, to British subjects from from around the world, other Commonwealth countries, yet native Aboriginal natives of any part of the empire were not British for the purpose of the act. Just for the purpose of the act, yes. yes. So, so as um, subjects of empire, absolutely, but um, only uh, white Canadian, South African, um, and Australian migrants mm. were welcome. Yeah. So, I mean, we talk, we've touched on uh, Indian migration to Aotearoa and how at first that was, you know, you're British subject, so that's perfectly fine. So that, that attitude's changing, right? It sure did, yeah. And I, I'd suggest that eugenics had quite a big part to play in it as well. Um, suddenly the uh, kind of the fine print of um, imperial citizenship doesn't count quite so much when genetics come into the mix, for yep. example. I mean, that's interesting because they looked at the Dalmatians as like really hard workers. And the same with the Chinese. These people mm-hmm. would come in uh, to New Zealand and they'd do the job. And they didn't drink like the Europeans drunk. Mm-hmm. 
they got down and, and did it. So uh, claiming eugenics and some kind of superiority uh, yeah. of, of Pakiha stock is ridiculous. Oh, it's yeah, absolutely. There's actually a really great example of it. Um, market gardeners around Auckland um, being singled out in the in like the in early 1920s, I believe it was. Um, Chinese uh, businessmen who running these gardens had Maori women employed under them. Mm-hmm. And these wild rumors were going about that um, you know they were living in sin and these Maori women were being corrupted by these devious Chinese men. Um, Inspections, uh, you know, officials who went in to kind of inspect um, these facilities found that there were a number of lawful marriages between Maori and Chinese men, Um, a number of common law arrangements, but by and large um, nothing nothing kind of vicious or um, super threatening. If anything, um, the whānau of those Maori women uh, said that they were very happy with, um, you know, their daughters uh, marrying these Chinese men. They were good husbands and hard workers. So much like you said... um, there, all these suspicions uh, surrounding um, different uh, migrant groups had very little basis in reality, but still they persisted yeah. very strongly. Now, um, of course, there's the Great Depression and jobs started to dry up as well. So in 1931, immigration from Europe, from Europe was stopped, mm-hmm. not from, from uh, Britain or Ireland, but from other places in Europe. Yes. And that um, led to um, the stopping of... Well, just Jewish refugees escaping Nazis um, yeah. were not, couldn't come here. No exceptions made for victims of Nazism, no. Um, oh. So we, we actually we accepted a, a few, but pretty much a handful compared to um, Britain and the US. They took droves of people. Um, we accepted just over 1,000 Jewish yeah. refugees, and it was because of um, those restrictions against European migrants. Yeah, and yeah. it's something that you don't really hear about. I mean, that's a tragedy in New Zealand's past. Oh, it sure is, yeah. I'd say that we're um, trying to do better for refugees today, Mm -hmm. but certainly there's a pretty checkered history when it comes to uh, looking out for people in need arriving at our shores. Um, So, I mean, that's, you know, eight years before World War II starts in 1939, so there's there's hardly any migration except for Australia because that's been... Australia's had unbridled access to Aotearoa this whole time. Yes. Essentially, and and then Britain. Uh, Then, of course, the war hits. um, We send off all the men overseas. Uh, A lot don't come back. So in 1946, they do a population report uh, and they look at um, bringing in numbers again and they preference for British stock as mm-hmm. well as northern European Scandinavian people. Yes, um, they were expected to be able to assimilate, quote-unquote, um, more easily than other migrant groups, um, or at least would be able to kind of be um, pressured to fall into line with what was considered New Zealand or Kiwi identity. But, yeah, there was that populate or perish mentality yeah. where, oh, if another war comes, yeah. we must be ready. We've lost all these folk and we need to rebuild New Zealand. I mean, it's interesting to me that you've got that kind of attitude that sounds very much like the attitude they were fighting against during the war. <laughs> Quite right, yeah. And um, as we say, you know, we're restricting here and uh, opening the gates there just um, according to changing circumstances. There was very little consistent logic when it came to immigration policy. Yeah, <laughs> and and, the, and I guess around this time the, um, the t- continued discrimination towards Asians would have wrapped up even more, um, especially towards Japanese. Yes, absolutely. Um, so even though the bottom had fallen out of uh, eugenics, you know, it wasn't so quite so popular after um, the Second World War and the results of, um, you know, of, of all of that business came out. But still, yeah, absolutely, racism against um, non-European uh, folks continued and just certainly shifted to Japanese folk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is, you know, not long after the end of World War 
two, you've got the Korean War. We go to try to um, help the the Korean South Korean government out, but essentially we're only there because the Americans are there. Yeah, certainly. And um, you can imagine that uh, as an Asian New Zealander at that time, uh, the folks around you would not be too adept at discerning whether you were a Korean, a Japanese or a Chinese person. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, so it, it was just tough, uh, tough times all round. <laughs> yeah. Um, into Norman Kirk. Yes. Yes, um, 1971. He argued New Zealand's future was with Asia and the Pacific. Uh, New Zealand needed a migration policy that ignored race, colour and religion. Mm-hmm. And um, Brits were now treated like any other nation. Yes, um, a, a big paradigm shift if you look back. I mean, now we're looking at uh, a migrant's qualifications, their assets maybe, oh. their wealth um, and their skills rather than the colour of their skin. Um, so a, pr- a pretty big shift. I mean, if we think about the 70s, around that time, civil rights movements had rolled through the world. Um, we'd had the Māori cultural revival down here and um, pretty prominent anti-racism struggles. Yeah. Um, these discussions were being had um, in the public in a widespread kind of manner for the, for the first time. And so policy came in to support that change, to reflect it to some extent. I mean, New Zealand was a really interesting place at the time. I think a lot of people will think, you know, it's the early 70s or the mid-70s. It's not that long ago. But we were still a very conservative lights out at six type thing. Six o'clock closing was still in force. Yeah, six o'clock closing. uh, You know, you couldn't shop on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were all mannered. Like, it was very, um, I don't know, it's what everything else would have been like in the 40s, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Except, you know, there's one Chinese restaurant per major centre kind of thing, you know. (laughs) It's where people go to try broccoli for the first time. Yeah. (laughs) God. Yeah, so it, it, that's true, by the way, John Stenhouse, Palmerston North. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Amazing. Bless. So, I mean, yeah, it, so a very, um, very, still very British country, we could yeah. say. And, but, you know, um, certainly more isolated and uh, somewhat sheltered from the rest of the world. So it was about time to open up a bit more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so could Kirk see the appetite from, um, or, or, you know, just the thought of, of the actual people within the nation changing? Or, you know, or did he think it needed to change? Were, were New Zealanders' attitudes changing towards people from overseas? Um, I think gradually, yes. Uh, there was also the matter of Britain entering the European market and kind of turning much more strongly towards uh, Europe. So likewise, um, New Zealand started to broadly recognise uh, its place in the Pacific yeah. and in the Asia-Pacific. And so um, we have had um, Pacific Islanders coming in for uh, a good while and also uh, Māori migrating to urban areas in enormous numbers. So um, just by virtue of that kind of cumulative change, even mm-hmm. though there had been restrictions in place at various points um, throughout the century, inexorably New Zealand was slowly becoming more diverse and so I think Kirk was responding um, to that. All right, all right. Well, I think uh, we'll leave that for now and we'll take a look at that next time. Yeah, we need a whole lot more detail in that late 20th century story. There's plenty more to say, for sure. There is, there is. All right, thank you. Kia ora. Thank you, Jamie. Have a wonderful day. Will do. This was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.